0: In our coming to consider the words preserved for us in Psalm 49, we find God giving us a powerful pointed sermon regarding the foolishness of trusting in riches. The foolishness of trusting in riches. And by way of expounding the psalmist's sermon, Let me walk you through what I see to be the introduction of his sermon, followed by the three main points of his sermon. And looking first to the psalmist's introduction in verses 1 through 4, we find a call to take heed to his message. The psalmist says, beginning in verse 1, hear this, all ye people, give ear." All ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together, my mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the heart. And what we find in these words is an invitation from the psalmist to take serious heed to all that he is about to say. In fact, the method of arousing listeners to be attentive to one's message is a common biblical practice among those who desire to burn the truths of God's Word into the hearts of others through the means of preaching. Let me give you a few examples from the scripture, beginning with Moses, the prophet. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. And then you'll remember from Sunday evening sermon, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses stands before the nation of Israel and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is a call to take heed. This is a call to pay attention. And then in Deuteronomy twelve twenty-eight, Observe, Moses says, And hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee. And then Isaiah, the prophet says, Isaiah 28, 23, Give ye ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. Isaiah 55, verse 3, Incline your ear and come, hear, and your soul shall live. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, 15, Hear ye and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord Hath spoken, Hosea five verse one. Hear ye this, O priests, and hearken ye, house of Israel, and give ye ear, O house of the king. Joel chapter one verse two. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. So throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we see these calls, these invitations by preachers to take heed to all that is going to be said. And then as we turn into the New Testament, looking to the preaching of Jesus Christ himself, we see that he implies the same methods as the prophets. It was Jesus who often said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, what I'm about to tell you is the truth, so pay attention. You have two ears. One ear is a verily, the other ear is a verily. Make sure you have them both in tune. Jesus also said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear, drawing his hearers to his message. Peter, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, the day of Pentecost, we read, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my word. The Apostle Paul, Acts 13, 16, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. In other words, listen up. Take heed. Hear. Acts 22, verse 1, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense which I make to you now. And often through the writings of the Apostle Paul, we find him using the word, behold, 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 or awake, awake to righteousness. Awake, you who sleep. So it is not an uncommon thing for a preacher to begin his address by using the term hear, or hearken, take heed, behold, listen up. Or sometimes in the evening service at 7 o'clock, wake up. This is important. I want you to get this. You need to tune your mind in. This is exactly what the psalmist does. The psalmist begins his sermon by calling on people everywhere throughout the world to attend to his words. And he's teaching us that what he is about to say is important. What he is about to say is from God. What he is about to say is full of wisdom, and it has the ability to transform our life here in this world, and it has the opportunity to prepare our soul for the life to come. So we see in verses 1 through 4 his opening appeal, and then following his opening appeal, we find in verses 5 through 9 the first main point of his sermon. And what is the first main point of his sermon? Here it is. Write it down. Cement it on the forefront of your mind. Point number one, given by the psalmist in Psalm 49 is, Riches cannot make you right with God. Riches cannot make you right with God. Verse 5. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my hill shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption." Riches cannot make you right with God. God, through the psalmist, wants us to understand that money is a false god that cannot satisfy our souls. God, through the psalmist, wants us to recognize that riches and wealth are false satisfactions and false securities. They cannot and will not bring eternal satisfaction And one cannot purchase heaven for oneself or for others. You say, Pastor, do people actually believe that money has the ability to earn favor with God? Absolutely. There are many in various religious circles, including our own, who sincerely believe that God is pleased with them because... They give of their finances to a religious institution. They give their finances in their mind to God. And don't we see this illustrated with the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Remember the self-righteous Pharisee who stood with himself and prayed proudly that he fasted twice in the week and gave tithes of all that he possessed. He was better than the publican. He was better than others because he was so generous in his giving to God. Sadly, I fear that there are many people who frequent Christian churches and even Baptist churches who are thoroughly convinced that God owes them a place in heaven simply because they are kind and have done many charitable works through giving. And interesting enough, it was this very truth that stirred the heart of Martin Luther against the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church during Luther's day was teaching that living people had the ability to reduce the amount of punishment dead loved ones and friends would receive for their sins in purgatory if the living ones gave money to the Catholic Church. Remember, That old quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. The Catholic Church persuaded others that through their giving of their finances, they had the power to save souls. But God says through the psalmist that money cannot redeem the soul. God says that riches cannot atone for sin. This is point number one. Riches cannot make you right with God. Connected with point number one is point number two. In verses 10 through 14, we find the psalmist wanting us to recognize that death is inevitable. Death is unavoidable. Verse 10. For he seeeth that wise men die, Likewise, the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, being in honor, abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This is their way and their folly. This is their way is their folly, yet their posterity approves their sayings. Selah. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. Death is inevitable. Death is unavoidable. Now see the correlation between the first two truths of the psalmist's sermon. With the desire to awaken people up to the reality of all realities, the psalmist says, while there are those who live their entire lives for riches, there is coming a day in which they will die and will part ways from everything that they boast in. Death will swallow up everything they're living for. The psalmist is mentioning death to bring a stinging shock in their hearts. The psalmist wants all to know, everyone throughout the globe, that all men, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, male and female, those who are highly esteemed in the eyes of men and those who are rejected in the eyes of men are going to die. They're going to be stripped away from everything they own in life. In fact, in verses 16 and 17, he mentions that everything we own in life will be given to others. You have your name on it now, but when you're dead, somebody else will put their name on it. And this same truth is emphasized by the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and then also by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the point the psalmist is bringing out in his sermon is, your money cannot buy your way out of debt. I recently read an article about some rich man trying through scientific means to freeze himself so that he'll never die. It's absurdity. It'll never work. Why? Because God says in His Word, It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. It's inevitable. All of us are on a one-way road to death. You can't slow it down. It will come. The story of the rich man and Lazarus emphasizes these truths. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple, in fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day, who died and now is suffering the wages of his sin. This truth is illustrated in Judas, the disciple who betrayed Christ for what? For 30 pieces of silver with the desire to become rich. Judas died and went to hell. So Jesus says, for what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, listen, the life of the rich and famous is a mirage. Hollywood as a whole truly is a story of fiction. The rich celebrities, the wealthy, well-respected businessmen, the sports stars getting $700 million contracts, the corrupt politicians who take advantage of others financially, and the idolized musicians of this world are all going to die one day. And eventually, after their death, they're going to be forgotten about. And their mansions, their sports cars, their bank accounts will be forever gone that which they spent their entire lives living for will become their greatest disappointment. It will all amount to nothing. Are you seeing the timelessness of the truths the psalmist is bringing to our attention in this psalm? There's nothing new under the sun. Death is death, and death will come to all. The first point of the psalmist's sermon is riches cannot redeem the soul. Point number two, death is unavoidable. Death is just around the corner. And then beginning in verse 15, we have the psalmist teaching us how we can be right with God. He's an evangelistic preacher. He brings death to the table as that which is the ultimate reality. And in view of that, He wants us to know that there's a way of escape. Verse 15. But, there's the contrast word, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. Selah, stop, think about what was just said. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of, of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perisheth. Now zooming in on verse 15, you will notice a contrast that the psalmist makes between the one trusting in his riches and himself, one who's trusting in God. Do you see it? He says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For he, God, shall receive me. The one who's glorying in his riches, the one who does not know God, The one who is not thinking about their day of death will die and be rejected by the Lord. But as for me, the psalmist is saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my soul, all is well. And I want you to notice what the author of this psalm's confidence is in. His confidence is not in his money. His confidence is not in his religiosity. It's not in his giving money to a religious institution. His confidence is not in his fasting. It's not in his prayers. It's not in his kindness. It's not in anything he is or anything that he does. His confidence is fully in God. Do you see that? But God, he says, will redeem my soul. He shall receive me. And in this point, we find truth regarding man's need in God's work. What does man stand in need of in light of death? Well, he stands in need of salvation. And where can salvation be found? Salvation can only be found in God. And this is the primary truth of Scripture. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The wages of sin is death. Jesus says, if we do not believe that he is the Christ, if we do not receive his gospel, we will die in our sins. We will be separated from God for all of eternity. So where can man find redemption? What hope do we have after death? The psalmist is teaching us in God. We have peace. In God, we have life. The message of the gospel is through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we can be eternally saved. Through believing the gospel, repenting of sin, we can be accepted by God. And this is really the message of Christmas. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich. You see, true richness is found in Jesus Christ. So Isaiah invites us in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, catch it. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What does God require for sinners to receive salvation? All He requires is faith. All we bring to the cross is our sin. That's it. No money. No good works. Nothing of our personality. It's all of Him. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. That's the message. And if we're poor in spirit, Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount, we shall be blessed. We shall be truly spiritually rich. Three points given by the psalmist here in Psalm 59. Number one, riches cannot make you right with God. Point number two, all of us are going to die. Death is Inevitable Death is unavoidable. You cannot pay your way out of death. It will come. And then number three, salvation can be found through trusting in God. Salvation is found in receiving the gift of the gospel. Understanding that God in His richness became poor so that you might become rich. Now, having looked at the psalm, I want to conclude by giving you five quick pastoral principles in the light of the truths we've considered. Five points of application. And point number one, I want you to understand as we look at this psalm that all of us are rich. That's application number one. Listen, all of us are rich. So that means all of us have need to guard ourselves against covetousness, greed, greed, Finding satisfaction in money and earthly possessions. You thought I was just attacking the millionaires of the world tonight. No. You see, this psalm is not just for the millionaires, this psalm is for us. You do realize, as Americans, I don't care how poor you are tonight, you are richer than most people in the world. You are. So you don't have a $1,000 to your name. You're still rich in the eyes of most of the world. So we have need to take heed to what the psalmist is saying, all of us. We have need to guard against money becoming an idol in our lives. We need to be watchful that we do not let our hearts find satisfaction in riches. You say, is that possible for a believer? Absolutely. In fact, Paul tells Timothy that it's his pastoral duty to approach the rich and make sure that they do not find satisfaction in their riches. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded. This is for us. We are rich financially. We are well off. We need to be charged that we be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but In the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So, looking at Psalm 49, the first point of application I bring to our attention tonight is all of us are rich. Therefore, all of us need to take heed to this sermon. Point number two, we must constantly remind ourselves of how God sees things. What can we learn from Psalm 49? Number two, we need to constantly remind ourselves of how God sees things. In other words, how things are in their eternal perspective. It's a real temptation to become troubled that God when we see the wicked prosper and the righteous forsaken. Right? This was Asaph's struggle in Psalm 73. He looked to the world and he said in his heart to God, this is not right. It's not fair. Actually, it's wrong. God's people were hurting and suffering persecution. Why, the wicked were prospering in their riches. Isn't that what we see every day in this world? And sometimes there's that voice whispering in our ear, is this how God treats His people? Have you ever thought these feelings before? Come on, let's be honest. I work so hard and I struggle to get by. When these ungodly people who cheat, take advantage of others, steal and lie, have all this money. Here I am pinching pennies while they, the ungodly, seem to have everything they want. It's not right. It's not fair. And that thought of bitterness begins to grow. If Psalm 49 teaches us anything, it teaches us that we must constantly remind ourselves of how God sees things, of how things really are. The third principle we learn from this psalm is the vital truth that we must strive to live for eternal things. As God's people, we must strive to live not for the here and now, but for the eternal. And this is the message of Christ. Jesus spoke about riches and finances and wealth all the time. This is important because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Why does he say this? Because he knows our tendency. He knows that we are tempted to keep up with the Joneses. This is our idea of success. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt And where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then Timothy is reminded by Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Paul says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. He does not say that money itself is the root of all evil. He says, but the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see his passion. You see his preaching with authority to Timothy to take these same principles given in Psalm 49 seriously. If we do not get money matters right, it can mess us up. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures upon earth. Point number three, we must strive to live for eternal things. Point number four, we must be thankful for the salvation God gives. We must be thankful for the salvation God gives so we don't have money in this life. So we live in a small house, we drive an old car. If God has revealed himself to us, If we have peace reigning in our hearts, are we not? Listen, are we not the richest people in all the earth? Do we not have cause for rejoicing in God? We're children of the king. We're joint heirs of the prince of peace, the one who owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So what do we lack? We lack nothing. The Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. So? So what if unregenerate billionaires have a private island, a private jet, multiple mansions and fast cars? If they don't have Christ, they don't have hope. And it's true. That's why so many... Rich people and stars are drunkards and drug addicts. That's why they're often in and out of rehab. They're in and out of marriages. The average celebrity, two, three, four, five, six, seven marriages. And they often end their lives by suicide. Again, it's a mirage. Though it seems like they have it all. That's what the magazines and the television shows portray. It seems like they have it all, but listen, they have nothing apart from Christ. So you see Taylor Swift with all of her glimmer and glamour. Feel sorry for her soul. Young people see reality as it is. Sports cars driven by athletes. So what? So what if they don't have Christ? So those of us who know Christ must be thankful for the salvation God has given. Next time you see them, just glory in God that He's revealed Himself to you. Don't wish for that life. Don't don't covet that which only lasts for a vapor. We have riches in Christ that last forever. Thank God for the unspeakable gift that He's given to you. And then my final exhortation is the clear need then to live for Christ and not for money. If we can boil everything down into this one point of application, it would be this. Live for Christ and not for money. Now the message of the world that is constantly preached in our ears is this. Live for money, not for God. The message we hear from the world is live for things, live for toys, live for entertainment, live for the here and now, live for your happiness. But I'm telling you the opposite. I'm coming alongside the psalmist and saying, listen, take heed, write it down, don't forget it, live for Christ, not money. So what does this look like? This looks like revolving your time, your energy, your effort, your schedule around doing the will of God, not on getting wealthy. Remember C.T. said, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ shall last. It's true. Parents, listen. Listen. Don't teach your children that graduating from a prestigious college, getting a high-paying job is what is most important in life. Teach them that fearing God and keeping His commandments is the most important thing in life. Parents, you, you can drive your kids to get straight A's, to be on the president's honor roll, You can drive your kids to be star athletes. You can drive your kids to be involved in various groups at school. But what shall it profit in the long run, in eternity, if they don't know God? And I've seen this happen with church kids who shake their heads. Oh, yeah, we know that pastor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh, you're right. And yet, meanwhile, they do the opposite. Revolve your children's time, energy, effort, schedule around God. That's what they need. And then a sermon for children. Shall we preach to children? We talked about it Sunday night. Children are here present. There were sermons preached to children in the Bible. Children, listen. Don't live for riches, don't live for fame, don't live for possessions. Don't live for pleasure, live for God. Everything under the sun is vanity, it's worthless if you don't know God. And I know when you're young, you start becoming a teenager, you have these dreams of becoming rich, living in a big house, having lots of money and going on elaborate trips. Do you remember older adults having dreams like this when you were young? I kept a picture of a yacht next to my bed that I would often look at as a teenager. And I said, When I get older, I want this yacht, and I'm going to travel the world and all the oceans, and I'm going to have a big mansion by the beach, and I'm going to have all these restaurants in my mansions, and I'm going to have all these cars because I'm going to be a professional NBA basketball player. And then I looked in the mirror, and I was 5'10 and white. Couldn't dunk a basketball. You say, "Well, John Stockton was wide and short." Well, he was six one. If you're over six foot, you have a chance. I didn't have a chance. But the, you see, even at a young age, the idol of my heart was become rich, get all that you can do, because that's where happiness will be found. I'm so good, glad that God shattered that false idol. At the age of 16, I have no regrets. I'd rather serve the Lord on the backside of the desert than travel the world through a yacht, though it sounds like a yacht of fun. <laughs> Children, it's all in vain if you don't know Christ. So before you idolize these celebrities who have it all and the gold chains and the spinning wheels, in all these things, just remind yourself that one day it will all burn up. If they don't know Christ, they'll be lost forever. Don't live for money. Live for Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24, Thus saith the Lord, You see, the Lord doesn't see things as man sees them. What do we delight in? Might, power, prestige, position, notoriety. God says he delights in the one who knows him. What does Psalm 49 preach to us? Two truths. Truth number one it's folly to trust in riches. And truth number two, it's wise to trust in the Lord.